You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 98 with Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani or Dr. G. I'm really excited because the newsletter that I often talk about because I I love it has really been growing in the last few months and reaching so many of you. My absolute favorite part of the newsletter is that I get to hear from all of you and thank you for writing in, for responding directly to me, to sending your thoughts and questions and comments and sending your DMs on Instagram. I love it. So if you haven't joined the newsletter yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. There's a link at the end of the show notes. There's a link on my website. Join me over there. It's really a fun way for us to connect and to keep our community growing. All right. And then now, today we are talking all about body stuff and what happens in the body when somebody engages in eating disorder behavior. And what Dr. G explains is that so much of this is individualized and nuanced based on genetics and other factors that we don't quite understand all the complexities of what goes into the different complications of eating disorders and that to a certain extent, it doesn't matter. Now, in that statement, might be loaded for you, which I will leave Dr. G to explain in a little bit. So she talks about why that is, and also, of course, some very concrete changes that happen in the body, why that happens with all different eating disorder behaviors, and also what happens when somebody starts to eat again. This episode is just like chock full of info. It is incredibly organized as only Dr. G can deliver the information and really easily digestible. No pun intended. But a little bit more about Dr. G. She's a medical doctor, certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, soon to be consultant. I this a tangent perhaps for another time for just very specific complexities reasons we're changing that over at IDEP. But anyways fellow at the Academy of Eating Disorders, and she is the founder and the medical director of the Gaudiani Clinic. She completed her undergraduate degree at Harvard Medical School at Boston University and and is board certified in internal medicine, did her internal medicine residency and chief residency at Yale. You might have originally heard of Dr. G as the medical director of acute and then founded the Gaudiani Clinic, which is a Denver-based outpatient medical clinic dedicated to people with eating disorders and disordered eating. So they are licensed to practice, Dr. G and her doctors are licensed to practice in 47 states via telemedicine. And she talks about specifically what that means and how that works. They are the place to provide weight-inclusive and fat-positive medical care and 
completely embracing treating people of all shapes, sizes, ages, genders. I mean, the definition of an inclusive place. Dr. G has lectured nationally, internationally, is widely published in the scientific literature. She does tons of blogs and is a former member of the editorial board of the International Journal of Eating Disorders and the Academy for Eating Disorder Medical Care Standards Committee. She wrote the book Sick Enough, which is also a different way that you might know her, which is a very popular book. It is absolutely incredible. If any of you are practitioners, family members, or just going through an eating disorder, this is the book to read. I don't usually promote books this way, but it's really amazing. Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. And hopefully, maybe there'll be another book. It's available everywhere. So just Google it. And now for my conversation with Dr. G. All right, Dr. G, let's do this. I'm excited to have you on. Thank you so much for coming. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, maybe before we get into some of what we're going to talk about today, can you share a little bit about, I mean, people know who you are, but who are you? What brings you to this work? Hmm, I would love to answer that. Thank you. So any story about my origins in the work starts with the fact that I'm the oldest of three girls. And that's a really important part of my identity. When I graduated from college and stayed in Boston for med school, my sister came to college and had developed an eating disorder. And she's been very, very gracious about allowing me to acknowledge publicly the way that she deeply inspired me for the rest of my career. And I didn't know anything. I mean, I did not know anything about it. And I had had, you know, exposures to the way that society treats bodies like everyone else and was just as potentially susceptible to equating feelings about body and food with self-worth as, as anybody else at the time. I knew that what she was going through was way bigger than what a big sister could solely support. And so she got a magnificent therapist and I was then her just loving support human and just kept giving her messages. Don't take things out on your body. Your body isn't responsible for what's going on in your emotions. Be loving to your body, be gentle. Your body needs you. And it was really interesting because I was in med school, which is a very orthorexic, you know, fat phobic place in and of itself. Totally. But I credit supporting her with my own transformation, never having had an eating disorder myself, but again, having been influenced with really putting me into a different category of how I truly thought about my body and my care, because I said it so many times to her that I realized I, I started to like deeply believe it within myself. And she struggled for a long time and has been recovered for a very, very long time now. But I certainly was with her on that journey. In med school, I saw a lot of bad care. I saw a lot of care that was so brusque, fast, assumptive. And having been an English major in college who just barely scraped through her pre-med classes, I really love stories. I really love narrative arcs and I love communication. So as I completed med school and realized that I am at my heart, a totally nerdy internal medicine doctor, it was clearly just like what was always going to be there for me. I realized that what I wanted was to take my medical knowledge, flawed as it is, always going to be, 
and meet patients at least halfway as they share with me what they are expert in, which is their story, their body, their suffering, their responses to prior care. And that if we could meet each other in the middle and have warmth and connection, that we could create something that was maybe new. And so I had no idea that I was going to go into eating disorder care. I just knew that I really wanted to listen to patients' stories and to meet them there. And so I did my internal medicine residency and chief residency and then came out to Denver and started working for the inner city teaching hospital for the University of Colorado. I speak Spanish fluently. I've always worked inner city. And um, to be clear, I speak medical Spanish fluently. I don't want to give an idea that uh, I can drop into any Spanish speaking uh, country and sound like a, a native. Only in the medical community, you will. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And uh, so I, about a year into my employment, one of the heads of the hospital system reached out and said, you know, and unbeknownst to me, he was one of the world experts in the medical complications of eating disorders who wants to help me grow and run this unique program that I've created called Acute. And having of course, experienced my sister's work and recovery. And at the time being pregnant with my second daughter and being a super strong feminist, I was like, oh me, I want to do that. That sounds amazing. And a lot of it was on the job training. I mean, you know, I got to read his book and then kind of just jump in. And I learned so much from my beloved patients. So for those who don't know, ACUTE is the top medical stabilization program inpatient hospital in the country for adults with uh, critical medical severity from anorexia. So I got to help run and grow that program for eight years. And just these were my patients. These were my people. I was still doing general medicine at the same time. Loved the team, loved the multidisciplinary part of it. Learned so much from the therapists and dietitians that I worked with the OTs, the PTs, the SLPs. And then I realized in 2016 that I wanted to see a more diverse group of patients. I had heard so many stories from my acute patients about the terrible care they were getting medically, where they would be harmed, they would be ignored, they would be missed, they would be triggered in their doctor's office. And I don't think I even had the vocabulary at the time to understand that what they were experiencing was medical trauma, but I do now. They had terrible medical trauma. And I had been so passionate in my internal medicine work with these patients about removing or reducing medical impediments to their recovery journey that I didn't even know at the time that they had this PTSD impediment to their recovery journey because of the horrors they'd experienced within various medical systems before outpatient and in higher levels of care. So I took a terrifying leap. It was terrifying. I mean, I had a job where I was known and I had a stable salary and I had an amazing team and had been able to do a lot of lecturing and learn a ton. And I was like, how about I start an outpatient clinic? <laughs> I know, let's do something I've never Just done casually, in my entire yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I was able to recruit an amazing group of women to help me create this space, this Gaudiani clinic in Denver. And since 2016, I mean, I thought I knew the medical complications of eating disorders in 2016. I did, but I have to have doubled or tripled my knowledge base since then because there was just so much I didn't know. So much that's non-measurable, so much that relates to having to deprogram myself and reprogram myself to be not just a weight-inclusive provider, but a fat-positive provider. 
so much to learn about social justice and how it vitally intersects with biology, science, medicine, and everything else. And that knowledge of that and respectful use of that within the clinical setting benefits everybody. Yeah. I had so much to learn about the unmeasurable illnesses, which we were taught in med school essentially to deride, to be like, well, it's not measurable. It's probably not real. And oh my gosh, I mean, I already knew medically that that wasn't true, but I have been thoroughly schooled in how to stay humble in the face of what I just need to rely on the patient to tell me the experience of their body. So I now have been doing this outpatient for another seven years. I'm learning like crazy. I love it so much. I love my patients so much. We're now four doctors, which is beautiful. We see patients in 47 states now because we're licensed all over the place um, and see patients by telemedicine. And really, we're providing the medical side of care while collaborating with the dietitian and therapist and whatever other team members might be involved to help the outpatient experience of recovery be as smooth and positive and reparative as possible. I'm curious about the telemedicine part. I'm not sure if this might, you might better explain this after when we talk about some of the specifics, but how does that work if you're seeing somebody only via telemedicine? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, It's really evolved over the time as we've learned what patients need and what we need as practitioners. But essentially, let's say that I'm caring for somebody in, uh, you know, Missouri and we will have an, an initial, you know, I'm not seeing new patients anymore, but my partners are, we'll have an initial two hour expert consultation and we'll have reviewed records and talked to the outpatient team and done all of this stuff and really gotten ready, reviewed the patient's intake. And we'll have just a lovely conversation over the course of two hours where we need to, we'll have sent a sheet in advance to ask a local primary doctor to get vitals, to get an EKG. Mm. We can always send lab orders. We can always send x-ray orders, bone density orders. So we have all the data that we need in advance. And then in follow-ups, you know, where patients need to be weighed and not everyone does, we'll use a clear step scale, or maybe they're used to getting weighed with their dietitian, for instance. Whenever we need labs, my nurse and I and, and the doctors can send lab orders anywhere in the United States and they'll come back to us. Imaging, same thing. And the reality is the majority of what I'm doing with my patients is listening to them. It's not laying hands on. I mean, we've gotten a couple of fun hacks about sort of abdominal exams when something more acute is going on. And I can send patients to urgent care when I need to. If I'm like, well, if it's strep throat, I cannot swab you from across the country. So Mm -hmm. someone's going to have to swab you. But really it's about talking and Mm -hmm. listening and together creating a plan that seems possible with a lot of work for the patient and really being super duper ultra patient-centered so that they are the ones directing care and I'm the one helping them get there. Mm-hmm. I like to say What about that, something like vitals, if that has to be taken frequently? Yeah, quite frankly, vitals don't dictate a lot of what I do. I'm interested, but I can have a patient tell me their pulse seated and I can have them walk around their room for 15 seconds and retake their pulse for an ambulatory pulse. I'm less interested in what their blood pressure says than if they feel dizzy when they stand up. If they feel dizzy when they stand up, I don't really care if their blood pressure is normal. We need to change something. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I'm not so interested if their pulse is 40 or, I mean, I I care, to be clear. Of course I care. But it's I'm not going to change my care per se if their pulse is 40, 70, or 90 
if they're on meal plan, they're hydrating well, they're seeing their team, they're getting good sleep and they're being kind to themselves, I know they're on the trajectory they need to be on to heal whatever that is. And by the same token, if they're not doing those behaviors, I don't care if their pulse is 80 and normal, things aren't okay. You know, behaviorally speaking, I know from them, from their therapist, from their dietitian, like, okay, we need to really, really work towards change here. And all the normal numbers in the world aren't going to alter my recommendations. So really like what's lovely about being a doctor in the field is where certain data are very, very helpful and we get it when we need it. It is about the lived experience, the narrative experience and collaborating together. So this sort of like leads me to another question that Again, let me know if it's not the best place for it. But the idea that I've gotten this complaint so many times, I'm sure you have as well. Why do I have to see my doctor so frequently? Why can't I just go like once every three months? And what's the difference? My numbers are okay. What, what would you say to somebody like that? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is that probably somewhere between 95 and 99% of individuals with eating disorders are not underweight. And so when they say things like my numbers are okay and that regards their weight, it's like, yeah, no, that's that's true for almost everybody. And then when it comes to those who purely restrict, almost everybody has normal blood tests because our body is so miraculous in balancing out its chemistries and, and trying to keep us stable. And even a large fraction of those who purge end up having normal labs. And when they get those back, they feel like, I mean, I'm sort of relieved they're okay, but I feel embarrassed. Maybe I'm not sick enough. Maybe I haven't been doing these behaviors hard enough. If it were really bad, it would show up in my labs. Absolutely not. We were built to survive. Humans are built to survive dreadful insults. We, our bodies are so beautiful. So the majority of patients have normal numbers. And it's one of the first things that we talk about when we meet so that they don't have the rug pulled out from under them by being like, oh, my eating disorder was right. I'm fine. I'm so embarrassed that we're having this conversation. But with regards to seeing doctors, when a patient is a member of our clinic, their treatment teams around the country know that they are being seen by eating disorder expert doctors and that we don't necessarily need the EKG each time, that we know the questions to ask. We know how this looks. We have collective huge years and years of experience in this. But the reality is, is that in the community, therapists and dietitians don't have that guarantee. They're not doctors. They're extremely medically savvy because they've had to been because a lot of medical practitioners do not know about these things. But they do need those numbers because in the absence of a physician who really, really knows it, they need the patient to go to the doctor and be like, I don't know what your body is doing. And I'm your therapist. I'm your dietitian. I have to see some numbers so that we can assess risk, so that we can assess response to treatment. And so that's the reason why patients do have to go to their practitioners more often or get numbers more often in a more standard outpatient setting. That makes sense. So if somebody's uh, quote numbers are off, that's just sort of like a phrase we use, then it almost indicates that things are pretty bad. Really bad. Yes. Yeah. Because otherwise really they'd be fine. And the majority of people you're seeing it actually have within normal limit numbers. Yeah. And the reality is, is that someone doing the two people doing the exact same behaviors, whatever they may be, one person may end up with completely normal blood tests and vitals. 
and the other may end up with terrible vitals and terrible blood tests. It's a matter of our genetics. You know, some people have sensitive genetics and some people have survivor genetics, as I put it, in the same way that, you know, a 90-year-old guy who's toasting on his birthday and he's like, it was the whiskey. We've got another guy who's barely been drinking heavily for 10 years and his liver is completely shot and he's on a transplant list. That's just related to sensitivity of that individual person's genetics to a particular environmental toxin. And so it's so important that patients understand that it is the sum total of their holistic experience within their life and their eating disorder that is what needs to be looked at, not just their potassium level, not just their weight, that really it's the impact of the eating disorder thoughts and behaviors on their ability to live their values their ability to be able to do the things in life that matter uniquely to them. That's what matters first and foremost. The medical stuff is so vital because we understand when somebody, for instance, simply cannot remain in an outpatient setting, they're too, you know, sort of their, their body has shown too high risk. They need to be more intensely monitored. And you also don't need any of those to be off in order to qualify for more intense monitoring because behaviors are so vitally important. But it also helps us understand sort of progress. It helps us understand where they are and how we can support them. It's just, it's such a holistic process. Yeah. So let's get into it just for a little bit. For the small percentage of people that things visibly or whatever you want to call it change in their body with behaviors, what happens when somebody heavily restricts for a significant period of time or just their bodies react to it more quickly? or just more at all, what happens to their body? Yeah, absolutely. And to be clear, virtually every human experiences medical symptoms of their eating disorder, whether they're measurable by labs or vitals, that's sort of what I was talking about on the numbers, but almost everyone experiences some symptom. And I definitely want to go through them because using those to reinforce severity of illness and importance of turning around behaviors and moving towards recovery is such important objective evidence. So I love to talk about the metaphor of the cave person brain, which is the part of our brain that evolved to resist death by starvation. And multiple systems within our brain are responsible for these unconscious changes in our physiology that occur when we're not getting in enough nutrition. And the not enough nutrition, I'm going to be talking about people in every possible body size and shape, not just the underweight ones. And I'm going to say that these changes I'm going to talk about, that cave person brain kicks in, it could be within days of restriction of any kind. It doesn't have to be severe. It doesn't have to be chronic because our bodies evolved to protect us. So broadly speaking, when we don't get in enough calories, our cave person brain goes, okay, we must be out in the desert and we don't know when we're going to get enough. So we'd better change essentially how our body works to save us. And we'll see how long this is going to last. It goes fundamentally to the core of how Western medicine has completely gotten wrong metabolism, the whole concept of metabolism. Western medicine imagines that metabolism, meaning roughly how much fuel you need to sustain your body on a given day, they think that metabolism is fixed, meaning that it is the same day to day, and that if you eat less or work out more, you'll lose weight. And if you eat more or work out less, you'll gain weight. 
And that's the whole premise behind sort of diet culture, which is so deeply harmful and deeply, deeply unscientific and ruinous. In actuality, the true science is that our metabolism is unbelievably dynamic and responsive. So when we eat less, our body says, oh, I need to burn fewer calories and our metabolism slows. And then we eat less and our metabolism drops more and eat less and our metabolism drops more. The way that it drops is going to differ by the individual human and their genetics, but among the different ways include slowing the heartbeat because a heart that's beating slower rest burns fewer calories. And that's through an increase in the vagal tone. When we're starving, our vagal tone is higher. So our heartbeat goes slower at rest. It's not because quote unquote, I'm a runner. Someone may be over-exercising, but a runner who is well-nourished, hydrated, and rested might have a modestly low pulse at rest, but when they walk down the hall and back, their heart will be the same because they are nourished, hydrated, and rested. By contrast, when a starving person of any body size has a slow heart rate at rest, when they walk down the hall and back, almost always their heartbeat is much faster. Whether it's formally tachycardic, that is above 100 beats a minute or not, doesn't matter. It's much faster. That is a simple test any clinician or individual or parent can do just to see what's happening there. That's not an orthostatic change, which relates to dehydration fundamentally, but it is a starvation change. Our gut slows way down to slow our metabolism. So our stomach, takes longer to digest food and release it into the guts. That's called gastroparesis. Our small intestine slows, our colon slows, and that's why people get bloated, distended tummies. That's why they get constipated. These are all ways that the body slows the metabolism. We get chilly. Our hands and feet get cold. In fact, someone may run their hand along their own arm and be like, warm, 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 cold. That is because our blood vessels literally deliver less blood to our hands and feet so that we don't lose heat out of our extremities. It's like shutting off the vents in a spare room in your house that the heating bill decreases. You just don't want to warm it up if you don't think that it's absolutely important to use. And in addition, it makes people feel chilly so that they seek out warm cups of tea and heavier clothing because the body's like, I'm not going to burn calories to keep you warm. Remembering that the vast majority of what we eat every day literally serves just to keep our body temperatures at an appropriate mammalian 98.6 degrees. Our energy decreases and people in the midst of their eating disorder might be like, oh, you know, this is a B12 problem. Maybe I have an iron problem. Maybe I'm just being lazy. The reality is, is that physiologically, all of us become much less energetic, curious, joyful, spontaneous, because our body is trying to conserve calories, just like all other starving mammals. There are so many other things I could go over, but those are key ones that besides the heart rate, aren't really going to show up in a blood test or a vital sign. Mm -hmm. And so when their metabolism is super, super slow like that, at some point, some people, depending on genetics, may then lose some weight. Who knows? Some may not, some may gain weight while restricting, which really blows doctors' minds, but it is the truth. I have seen it 1 million times. 
because bodies are trying to conserve energy. Now, at the same time that all these physical things are changing... Wait, one second. How does that happen physiologically? How does the body put on weight? Our body literally changes the way it works because the cave person brain senses starvation and it says, slow the heart rate, slow the gut, decrease the blood flow to the hands, make you chilly, cut off sex hormones so that you're not having a period, wasting energy on sex drive, wasting energy on getting pregnant. This is true for those who normally produce testosterone and those who normally produce estrogen, both. So this is the way that we literally evolved. If we hadn't evolved this way, you and I wouldn't be talking right now Mm -hmm. because this is how we survived our entire millennia of of evolution. And thinking-wise, when you're starving, our cave person brain makes sure you're really thinking about food. I mean, you are thinking about food. Anyone who's been through eating disorder symptoms of any kind knows that the like sort of obsessive, constant consideration of food is part of that. And some of that is the ED, sort of what did I eat? What will I eat? What is going to be okay? And some of it is just amazingly that mammal sense of like food, Mm -hmm. food, food, go find food. So there are so many things that our body does in the course of restriction and it's magical. Like it's not comfortable. And oftentimes it becomes an impediment to recovery. And there's so many things that can be done medically to ease those symptoms and make that early nutritional rehabilitation process go smoother. We have to use that information. We can't just be like, oh, your hands are cold. Okay, going on. Oh, hey, your hands are cold, even though your vitals and labs are normal, because you have restricted to a point where your body has slowed your metabolism to reduce blood flow to your extremities. Don't tell me you're fine. Don't tell me it's not that bad. Let's talk about what change you can make this week towards nourishing yourself better. Yeah, I don't know if this is a more complicated category, so I'm not sure if it's too complicated to answer, but what happens when someone binges regularly mm-hmm. yeah, to their absolutely. body? Yeah, so binging per se is generally pretty well tolerated by the body. Because we have a capacity to eat that is wonderful. We are, we are built to be amazing omnivores. Rarely speaking, somebody could have esophageal rupture. The swallowing tube could rip open. Um, rarely someone could have gastric rupture where the stomach rips open. More to the point though, it perpetuates a cycle of restriction and binging on the physical side. So when somebody binges, and oftentimes it's before they go to sleep, but of course not always then their insulin is going to spike up overnight because they need to manage all of the consumed food. And that can cause swelling or edema in the legs, in the hands, in the face. So a person has binged. If they have binge eating disorder, by definition, they sort of, they feel guilty and sort of torn up about it. They go to sleep, they wake up, their face is super puffy, their hands and feet are puffy. They feel, of course, still full and bloated and distended because it is a lot of work for a gut system to deal with processing and digesting a binge. So in the morning, they're not hungry. So they don't eat breakfast. And then they may not still be hungry by lunch, wherever the ED voice is versus just like, oh my gosh, I feel so bloated and distended and they may not eat lunch. And then as they start to move towards dinner, because of terrible diet culture, they might've been thinking things like, I'm just going to have a small dinner. I'm just going to have X, Y, or Z. But by the time they actually get access to food, 
they are going to binge it more likely than not because, again, this is how our cave person brain is designed. I like to say that when your ancestor and mine were walking through a rocky tundra for four or five days without enough food, and they came to the edge of a forest that had a beehive in it, what they did not do was dip a finger in and be like, oh, that was tasty. Let's move on. They emptied it. They completed it. They devoured it. They binged on it because that was protective as they continued their journey. And in the same way, when our cave person brain reads restriction, even if it was because your tummy was aching and full all day, it says, we don't have enough. We'd better go back into this. And it's really so vital, just sort of on the psychological side. And many of your listeners may well know this, just to remember that any episode in life that has left someone with inadequate intake, that could be food insecurity. It could be diet culture in the house. It could be diets, of course, and it could be a restricted eating disorder, but also anything that has deprived them of satisfaction in general, of feeling like needs were met, can register to the cave person brain like restriction of calories, binge when you possibly can. And so unwinding that process involves tender loving care, a totally anti-diet perspective, encouragement and support in eating throughout the day and of foods that feel and taste good and that nourish the body however it needs, and that that cycle absolutely can be broken. Yeah. I'm curious about the piece we were talking about with the restriction, the metabolism sort of like jumps around based on how much or how little somebody's eating. And I'm curious if there's any evidence pointing to metabolism jumping around for somebody who binges regularly? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So throughout the day, if they're restricting, metabolism will go down and it'll be protective and they'll feel sort of low energy and yucky and and maybe chilly, et cetera. And then they binge. And to some extent, the binge will sort of boost their metabolism overnight. Perhaps they may be hot and sweaty, for instance. That's evidence of sort of that fast, fast metabolism. But it's extremely stressful for your body to have a low metabolism and have a ton of food dumped on it. And, you know, I'm neutral to this, but it is likelier to lead to weight gain. So the reality is, is that even as that cycle down happens, people can be like, oh my gosh, I know my metabolism's broken because I'm not losing weight anymore, even though I'm restricting so much. Wrong. Your metabolism is being a total gentleman and it is holding low to try to protect your life. But as soon as you start to eat more, it goes faster and you eat more and your metabolism goes faster and you eat more and your metabolism goes faster. And so the important thing to remember is our metabolisms are always here for us. We have to honor the fact that consistent, adequate eating over time, I mean, this may take a year for everything to kind of settle out because our body is going to try to save our life when we start to get enough food. Some people can gain weight quite quickly when they start to eat again, and some people gain weight very slowly. Genetics, not moral code. <laughs> Genetics determines this. So the message is like, no matter what your body is doing, no matter what your health status is, without a question, the way to support it best is consistent, adequate, satisfying eating throughout the day at regular intervals. 
This is something that it doesn't actually exist, but I call bingey eating disorder, which is just sort of people who don't necessarily sit sit down or have their binges at a specific time, but just throughout the day feel bingey. And so I don't know the specifics of it, but I'd imagine that, or this is as, as per many of their reports, that they're uncomfortably full for a large portion of the day and that potentially they're eating more and maybe their metabolism is jumping and they're eating more and then they're eating more. How does that interact with their metabolism? Or, and again, like not that this is relevant, not that we care about weight gain, but that it's sort of their report is that it does lead to weight gain. So how do you make sense of somebody who's in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, somebody who is consistently fueling at a meaningfully higher rate than what your body needs will gain weight. That's what we're supposed to do. That's how our body mm-hmm. was designed. That's why it happens to everybody. And and so that's fine. Okay. That makes sense. To the extent that that is bothersome to the individual, weight is an extremely complicated subject biologically and socially. But what we say is, I am neutral to your weight. I don't even need to measure your weight. I don't need to know it. You don't need to get on a scale here. Getting on a scale may be incredibly triggering to you because of the kind of stigma you've received in a doctor's office if you don't happen to live in a quote unquote standard size or lower weight body. However, if what you want is to allow your weight to be in a place that is more congruent with what might have been predicted from your growth charts in the pediatrician's office through your youth, then what I'm going to ask you to do is work with your dietitian intensively on where the elements of restriction are in your life that are causing you to eat bingey, quote unquote, throughout the day. For instance, you might wake up and be like, today's the day. It's going to be a low carb day and I'm not going to have that. And I'm going to feel better and safe and all this stuff. Well, the second you then get access to carbs, you're going to binge on them because your cave person brain heard we don't have enough carbs and we're expecting we won't for a while. Oh boy, better get some carbs on board before we go out into that desert. So, you know, to say, wake up and whatever you want to eat, have that. The leftover Chinese food with the rice not heated up, great. Make yourself a bowl of it that looks satisfying and sit there and eat it mindfully. And then when you need a snack between breakfast and lunch, have the kind of snack that you anticipate would most meet your needs. Not a pretend version of that food. Yeah. <laughs> a real version. Not a like low fat cookie or something, but like whatever you're in the mood for, have it. Taste it, be present with it, and then have the same with lunch. And almost always, as people finally allow themselves to be like, you know what? I'm going to eat the foods that satisfy. I'm going to allow my body and brain to go through a period of time where it's all very confusing, especially if I'm coming out of a restrictive period in my life. I may be what some call party eating for a while where you just really do feel bingy and you're never satisfied. Biological. Of course you feel that way. Ride it. You know, try to be gentle and kind with yourself. Recognize, of course, you feel that way. Be patient. Continue to insist that you will eat consistently through the day of things that taste good and nourish you properly. And be patient and be mindful as possible because many people in this situation have been forced into a state of secretive or lonely eating because of how messed up society is or because of perhaps prior food insecurity or prior diets 
perhaps because of the the look and shape of their body, they get microaggressions when they eat normally where other people can see them. So really important to not be sort of secretive in your food, but to the extent possible, wherever it's safe, take your time, chew, be mindful, taste the good things, try to have something that allows you to be as present as possible for the food. Yeah. I've been thinking about this question a lot, especially when I have so many people sending me podcast episodes and research articles and and who knows what on different medical complications of what has been coined now as like a medical term, obesity, and that it's a thing and that it's an issue, and especially with um, all the different medications out there. And I guess, you know, I'm definitely not qualified whatsoever. So I rarely engage, but I guess I'm curious... There's so much information that says out there, if you continue to whatever people call, quote, overeat or do all this kinds of stuff, and if your body just gains more weight, these are all the health complications that you will suffer with. And and of course, like then you must do this and this is terrible with you. Is there any evidence pointing to that, that there are some medical complications or... I don't know, like what, what would you say to all that science and all those doctors who talk about, again, the medical complications of what they call obesity that we just sort of don't really like the word, but what has been talked about a ton? Yeah, of course, those are real. And Western medicine has gotten it wrong and has caused vast harm. So the situation is this, that there is no doubt that higher body weight can contribute causally towards conditions like steatohepatitis, also known as fatty liver, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, and heart disease. No question. We know this to be true because, you know, multiple animal models where there is no stigma involved around weight, of course, show that they get these complications when weight is purely manipulated by force-feeding animals until their body weight goes up. Yes, this is true. As an internist and a passionate weight-inclusive provider, of course, that is scientifically true. However, there are a lot of other features that can also contribute to developing these conditions. That includes adverse childhood experiences, trauma, stigma and poverty, food insecurity, lack of access to, you know, sort of balanced, uh, reasonable food, which can be an offshoot of food insecurity, multiple medical problems, multiple medicines, all of these can contribute to these conditions as well. And so what I say is it's a yes and situation. And let's say a patient of mine comes to me with any one of the eating disorders and they're in a larger body and they have diabetes and sleep apnea and hypertension. They have a tremendous amount of self-stigma. They are embarrassed and ashamed because their whole life, their parents were like, if you keep gaining weight like this, you're going to get diabetes. And so when they did, it was like crushing. Even patients who you know have really embraced a health at every size perspective, a weight-inclusive perspective, can feel a sense of dread and fear when they go from being a person in a higher bodied weight, a higher weighted body who doesn't have medical issues to somebody who does have medical issues, because then they're like, oh my gosh, am I now like no longer one of those sort of poster kids for somebody who is fat and also healthy? What does this all mean? 
And what I say to them is, I'm going to treat you exactly with the same standards and love and body positivity, et cetera, as any of my other patients. And I'm going to encourage you to work specifically on whatever your eating disorder is so that you are eating consistent, delicious food throughout the day that satisfies taste and body needs. One standard for all along those lines. No restriction of carbs per se, no restriction of this or that. Like eat what satisfies you and eat until you feel satisfied. And over time, this is going to regulate uh, in terms of sort of appetite and satisfaction and all of this stuff. But there is never a place for caloric restriction here. And if it's part of your level of ability and it's part of your interest in how your quality of life might be or the things you want to do in your body, I'm going to support you in starting to move more, not to change your body. Exercise, while it can be abused and contribute to weight loss in extreme circumstances, fundamentally does not cause weight loss. Exercise makes muscles stronger as long as it's properly fueled, rested, and hydrated. And stronger, bigger muscles are like insulin sponges. They absolutely just reduce insulin resistance and improve diabetes outcomes. And that's not like necessarily taking a walk because someone's knees might hurt. That is doing resistance work with a band with free weights. And it's not doing a gazillion reps. It's doing it under the observation of somebody who knows what they're doing, who is body inclusive, ideally fat positive, and it's getting stronger. So if somebody can improve their cardiovascular system and we can move around problems that can come with this, like knee problems, et cetera, their underlying medical problems are going to improve at the same time that their eating disorder recovery progresses. And their weight may not change, and I'm not going to check it unless they absolutely insist. I don't know. I don't want to know because it's not going to change my management. And their weight loss, if it ever happens, is not going to be something I celebrate. And their weight gain, if it happens, is not going to be something that I worry about. We are going to focus on adequate nourishment and improved movement. And beyond that, I'm going to treat their diabetes and I will get them a CPAP mask for their sleep apnea. The problem is, is that standard medicine puts them back into the hopper of diet culture. It says, restrict your calories. And so restricting calories is going to tell their cave person brain, we're back in the desert. A, we're going to be pushed towards binging if we actually follow that because we're a mammal. B, we're going to keep increasing our body weight because our body worries that it's starving and it wants to have extra to save our lives. So the only way forward is to actually provide the very self-same care that we do for patients who are in standard-sized bodies, quote-unquote, or underweight bodies, and that really reduces that yucky, dangerous, bad double standard that so many people in larger bodies experience in the medical system. That's very helpful. Um, What about somebody who purges regularly? Yeah, there's a ton that can go wrong there. And of course, the list could fill pages, but some of the things that are, are really relevant, of course, include an increased risk of reflux because as you hammer your stomach contents up back through your esophagus, you're going to weaken and reduce the power of your lower esophageal sphincter, which keeps stomach contents from rising up into your throat. 
you have the risk of dreadful tooth damage. And, you know, I can't tell you how many 35 year old patients wish they could tell their 18 year old self, don't do this. The bills alone are going to be absolutely horrendous and the pain and suffering are very hard to manage. So, you know, really dental stuff cannot be overemphasized in how important it is. And of course, dehydration and low potassium levels can contribute to cardiac arrest. There are plenty of people who die in the context of purging who've never been underweight a day in their lives because their heart stops due to low potassium. There's plenty of other patients who are like Dr. G. I have purged for years. I routinely refuse to take potassium. I know that I'm playing a game of roulette with my health, but it is my choice for my body. Nobody can make me and my heart's still beating. And the answer is you have unbelievable survivor genetics. Please stop pushing your body to the edge of survivability. You know, that's not a reason why you're quote unquote, okay. You've just been unbelievably lucky. And then, you know, of course, when somebody stops purging, there's at least a reasonable chance that they will have in the course of consistently purging developed something called pseudo barter syndrome or secondary hyperaldosteronism, where as soon as they stop purging, they just swell up like crazy. Their water retention is very, very uncomfortable and super triggering. This also happens in those who have type one diabetes, who have been not using enough of their insulin and they begin using enough again and they just swell up. So there are really nice medical ways of treating that. I detail them a lot in my book, but these can be managed so that it's not so medically unpleasant and it's not so psychologically much of an impediment. Yeah, which is sort of leading to me to my next question. Obviously, depending on what someone's struggling with, the process is going to look a little different. But say specifically for somebody who is undernourishing themselves, what happens when they start eating consistently? I mean, they talk all the time, especially my clients, how it's so physically uncomfortable. But what actually happens? Why is it so uncomfortable? Yeah, well, when a gut hasn't been getting enough food, the little microscopic, I don't want to say fronds, but they're sort of like, if you imagine that a football field that was pure concrete needed to absorb some substance, let's call it the sun. Of course it couldn't because concrete can't absorb the sun, but stay with me. If you then planted that football field with grass, you have tiny blades that vastly increase the surface area of that football field to be able to absorb the sun. Similarly, we have little tiny villi in our digestive system that make its surface area enormous. And it's through those that we digest our food. When they're malnourished at any body size, they wilt. They become blunted. And it can become severe enough that people can have a reaction that feels like you know, severe celiac disease, just starting to eat again, because all of these little villi are, are wilted. So when people start to eat after malnourishment for some period of time, oh my gosh, first of all, they're full so fast. They feel nauseated and an upper abdominal bloating, which is that gastroparesis, which we can manage medically. And then as the food gets out of their stomach and into their intestine, it goes so slowly at first because their metabolism is still low. And then it's not really being absorbed. So it just sort of sluggishly goes through there and it may get delivered to the colon with some still undigested food because the villi are blunted. And then that can act like you've just taken a huge laxative and it can cause a lot of diarrhea. 
But for other people, it just stays there and stays there. And they're like, oh my gosh, I've been on meal plan for a week and I haven't pooped. What is happening in there? And that can actually put pressure on the stomach and further make them feel nauseated and just really unwell. In addition, any kind of restriction risks the development of what's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. And that's where the normal bacteria in the gut that should be in the colon only because the gut has slowed down its forward motion to spare calories, those bacteria get the opportunity to crawl upstream and set up colonies in your small intestine where they're not supposed to be. That's supposed to be quite sterile. So those bacteria start eating your food along with you and producing a huge amount of gas. And so that gas can just be like not only incredibly uncomfortable and make you not want to eat and feel so bad, but also it can be a physical like impediment. People look down at their tummies and they're like, what is happening? I will not eat my next meal. All of these things can be medically optimized so that they, yeah, they're a thing, but they're not the thing. You know, they're like, look, I realize that I don't feel great right now, but it is manageable. I can do this. I can focus my energies on the psychological challenges here rather than on how physically awful I feel. Yeah. It's helpful to know that it could be medically managed because some people, I mean, it's almost a deterrent. If you think about it, they, in terms of body image, it's so difficult to do this. And then physically it's just terrible. So it's like, why am I doing this? If we can at least mitigate the discomfort physically, that's at least something. It's also helpful when patients begin that and they're like, I'm really resentful about doing this because I don't feel like I'm sick enough and I really feel bad now. In addition to providing sympathy and hopefully good, you know, sort of guidance towards medical practices that can ease the symptoms, the reality is you can say, P.S., if you weren't sick enough, you wouldn't be feeling this way. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'll tell my patients that in my health privilege, I can eat a huge amount of whatever I want and do every single day. And my stomach never hurts. You know, if I eat a really big bean burrito with onions, I'll probably get some gas and that's probably going to be uncomfortable. But like, it's a sign of malnutrition when you begin Mm -hmm. to re-nourish and you feel like crap. That is a sign that your body really needs this. Yeah. And what about um, some people talk about how hot they get? And for a lot of people, even if they've, been malnourished, they end up losing weight when they're eating so much more. How does that work? What, why does that work? Yeah, it comes back to our beautiful dynamic metabolism. And it depends on genetics, but there's plenty of individuals who begin to eat and their metabolism is ready. It's like, oh, I'm going to go super fast. And so even though the patient might be eating double what they were, they're losing weight still because their metabolism is faster. And then they do their calorie increase and their metabolism gets faster yet again. And they're like, what is happening? This is the weirdest thing. Like my eating disorder sort of likes it, but this is not what I need to have happening to me. Eventually I tell my patients, there is always a caloric level at which you can restore weight if that's what's needed, despite a fast metabolism. There's always, it's not sort of like, well, I guess we can't. Oh no, my friend. And it's so important in the middle of that to be like, look, are you eating your meal plan with the safest foods, which are going to be huge volume and contribute to your GI distress, which you're going to want to use as an excuse not to do things? Or are you really going with your dietitian's wisdom and eating the smallest volumes of high density caloric foods so that your gut isn't as tortured and you can make progress? So that's what happens. And then as far as the heat, literally your metabolism is going so hard 
that in order to get rid of the excess heat caused by your amazing furnace, you have to have a huge sweat in order to like get rid of the heat. Because again, mammals do not like ranging from, from where our core temperature needs to be. So when my patients start having those terrible night sweats that result in like changing the sheets and their t-shirt once a night or twice a night, I'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. That sucks so bad. Wow, your metabolism. This might be, you know, anybody's reading between the lines probably doesn't necessarily need to go set, but I think just specifically for the, because the question has been asked so time and time again, what makes it important to see somebody who specializes in eating disorders? I'm talking about a physician specifically, as opposed to somebody who is just the general internist or just somebody who doesn't necessarily have that much experience with eating disorders when somebody has an eating disorder and we're talking about medical management. Well, I want to be really gentle here because the reality is there aren't that many of us. Yeah. And so I don't want to be like, everybody has to do this or they're not going to get good care because everyone's going to be like, oh, but I don't have someone in my geography. I can't afford it. There's not enough people, et cetera. Like, I really want to be respectful of that. Where you can possibly get a provider who is even eating disorder curious, like, yeah, I would be happy to read this book you bring me. I, I want to know more about your physiology. You're just going to have better outcomes because A, they're going to be more likely to know that your symptoms are real and how to treat them and how to talk to you about them in a way that's not triggering. I would say the ones who should specifically really try to seek out an eating disorder provider, even for you know a year to get on the right track, are the ones for whom their medical complications are deeply an impediment. They truly can't get beyond them in their recovery psychologically, they might be like, I might be able to get there and accept this, but my body will not let me. That's the kind of person who optimally will find someplace like my clinic that can help them really sort of, because there's a lot of very, very sophisticated, complex stuff that we work up in this clinic that we can help so much. And people who've been blocked for five or 10 years are like, oh my gosh, I finally feel good. Oh, I'm making forward progress. But even when it comes to, you know, pediatricians, as a parent or guardian carer, asking the pediatrician in advance, hey, do you know about eating disorders? Like, what's your philosophy? Because it's all too common for a parent to bring their child in mid-adolescence, weight has gone up appropriately a bunch as this child prepares for their big growth spurts, et cetera. And the pediatrician, without thinking about it, and especially with these very unfortunate new guidelines out from the American Association of Pediatrics, says, well, you know, you've really gone up on your curve here on weight. We got to really watch your weight because we don't want you to get fat. And they actually can push kids into eating disorders. Or when your kid has developed an eating disorder and you're in the first four months and they're not formally underweight yet, but you as a parent are like, we have a big problem on our hands and we need to absolutely work on it right now. The risk is the pediatrician will be like, well, he's not officially underweight yet. So probably we can just watch this for a while longer. No. So, you know, when an individual goes to a doctor or pediatrician, whatever, and feels like, even if my eating disorder embraces this and is like, see, I told you, you weren't that sick. My wise mind says something wrong just happened here. And I'm going to try to process this with my therapist. And we're going to try to see if there's a strategy where I can read a blog that speaks to my wise brain or read a book or listen to podcasts like this that will actually make me feel more like, okay, I did know this was a problem and maybe they can find a provider who's open to going on that journey with them. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Just in the interest of time, before I let you go, first of all, this was incredible. And I think so organized in the way that you explain things, it's really, no pun intended, digestible for people to understand what's going on. So thank you. And thank you for coming on. Super kind. Thank you. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Um, Sure. So um, our clinic is www.gaudianiclinic.com and that's G-A-U-D-I-A-N-I clinic.com. My book is Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. It's available on Amazon as well as on other online purveyors. And we are on social media at Gaudiani Clinic and can be really relied upon to try to share cutting edge medical concepts, patient experience, validating stories and vignettes, and just content that is positive for people in all bodies that applies broadly speaking. And maybe there'll be a sick enough too, since you've learned so much in the last few years. I, I highly recommend that book. It was amazing. I actually hope that there will be in the coming years. Yes, that's the plan. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So guys, look out for that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.